Um, my name is Dr. Pete Finn, and I'm a senior lecturer in the university at the University of Kingston in the politics department. And this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. And on this episode, we are having our first round table on the podcast, which feels, at least to me personally, if not anyone else, um, very um, kind of uh, well it, important. But um, in in terms of the development of the podcast. Um, our, today we're going to be discussing a bit about um, democracy and free speech and the tensions that might come up for authors and publishers and I'll go into that in a bit more detail in a moment um, but just to kind of place where we are it's today is the 11th of February and the UK um, is just probably today it seems about to hit um, 4 million cases there have that's forming confirmed cases in the UK since last spring. There's been um, 115,000 deaths directly attributed, well, um, in the UK COVID stats. Um, the major bright spot um, in the UK, as in some other places, is the vaccine rollout. We're now at over 13 million, which um, is seems to be, um, you know, a, a really big bright spot in, in, from a UK. Um, point of view. In the US, uh, over 27 million cases thus far, um, over 470,000 confirmed deaths. Um, and likewise, the vaccine, um, though there are there have been some issues with the vaccine rollout um, in the US as elsewhere. The US is almost at um, 50 million um, d doses delivered and it would seem like it would probably hit 50 million by um, the end of this week. Um, in the EU, there continues to be issues and recriminations around the vaccine rollout, and there are big differences within and between the death rates and um, case rates across the EU, depending on which country you choose. Now, to discuss um, the issues around publishing and free speech and democracy, um, I've got a very, very well qualified panel with me today. Um, I've got Atsuko Itsijo, who is an associate professor in the politics department at Kingston University. She's the editor of um, the journal Nations and Nationalism and the Modernities in Europe book series, which and as well as the um, Food and Identity in a Globalising World book series, which she co-edits with my with our Kingston University colleague, Ronald Ranta. Um, and regular listeners to the podcast will recognise her from two previous episodes where we discussed her native Japan as well as Taiwan. And those of you that have read our report from last year will know that Atsuko also wrote the two chapters on those countries in that report. Um, we also have Dr. James Strong, who is a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University, and he is also, with particular relevance to today, a co-editor-in-chief -editor of the Political Studies Association's journal Politics. And finally, um, we have Chris Gilson, who is a managing editor of the USAPP blog site of the LSE US Centre. And I should just say that... Um, Myself and Chris worked very closely together on uh, some comment pieces for that site. Um, so the um, basis for this episode is that in recent months, partly as a result of doing this podcast actually, um, and as a result of my broader work on COVID-19, and particularly with relation to, I guess, my work on US politics, I've been thinking lots about the role of authors, 
publishing, publishers and editors um, in ensuring that free speech is protected and how to do that in an area where false narratives can gain quite a lot of traction very, very quickly. Um, and when there's lots of changing information um, coming out with relation to the pandemic and laid on top of these, those themes, thinking about how those kind of roles and functions exist um, in the democratic context. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much all for coming on the podcast to discuss these very, very um, large and complex issues. It really is um, a pleasure to have you here. So um, welcome Atsuko, James and Chris. Um, to start off, um, I just wondered, before we kind of dive into the details, do any of you have any initial thoughts on how any kind of key areas, either with relation to your specific areas of interest or in your work as editors, that we should be thinking about in this regard? Um, and so I, we can start with James. Did you have any initial thoughts? Yeah, um, I think there are a couple of things to think about here. I think, firstly, that, that we should distinguish between freedom of speech and a right to a platform. Um, and often people who are being denied access to a particular platform claim that their freedom of speech is being infringed. But I don't think that that's necessarily the same kind of thing. And I don't think that when you are responsible for a platform, as, as all of the panelists are, that doesn't necessarily mean you, you don't still have the right to apply some kind of gatekeeping role in terms of who has access and who can use it. Um, I also think that there is there is an interesting sort of um, dynamic here concerning what we mean by freedom of speech. And on the one hand, I think in a democratic society, generally we should have quite a broad definition of freedom of speech. On the other hand, I still think there is a distinction between the free expression of opinions and active efforts to mislead and to cause harm to other people using speech which I don't think is the same kind of thing. And I think that um, protecting opinions I don't like is a completely legitimate democratic task. But that doesn't necessarily mean that no action should be taken against people who are weaponizing the concept of free speech in order to cause harm to other people. So that's kind of some initial thoughts on the big picture stuff. Brilliant. Thanks very much, James. Um, Atsuko? Um, yes, I, I completely agree with James and that's uh, as you know that um, because my editorial work that's not necessarily um, it's not kind of immediately impacted by uh, uh, pandemic etc etc what I kind of been thinking about is that as it is the case with any other sphere of life um, this pandemic seems to have just accentuated highlighted what we've been kind of worrying about, thinking about, um, concerned with, um, such as the issue of weaponizing and abuse of the, the freedom of speech, like, you know, when Trump says that he's, uh, he was exercising the, his right to speech when inciting the mob, basically. Um, that has, I think that has highlighted even more in this context, rather than the COVID or the pandemic has changed something. It just makes it more visible, like any other things, like inequality in general, um, structural and injustice, etc., etc. Brilliant. Okay. 
Thanks, Atuka. And um, finally, Chris. Well, um, first off, thanks so much for having me on this podcast. It's great to be here and share some insights as, as an editor. Um, so James and Atuka have very eloquently made some points that I was thinking of making already. Well, what I would sort of riff on a little bit is is this the idea of freedom of speech, and I, I completely agree. And that you know, having being denied a platform is not the same as being denied freedom of speech. I tend to take a very old school interpretation of freedom of speech as being that you have the right for the government not to stop you from speaking, whereas when you're on a platform, if someone says no, they say no. I mean, also it's worth remembering that there are so many outlets and platforms for speech that you can have, and on the left and right, in the center and neutrals, I like to think I run a relatively neutral platform, but there's certainly places that folks can go if they if they feel they they aren't uh, being allowed a voice on, on somewhere. Uh, and I always do find it amusing folks saying that they've been cancelled and, well, if we if you were cancelled, we wouldn't be able to hear you, would we? So that, that that's one aspect. Um, and just kind of picking up on Suko's point um, about how COVID makes things different, I'm not sure necessarily it does in terms of the way we talk. I saw a tweet recently talking about how, do you remember back in 2018 people thought, oh, you know, everyone is very polarized and left and right. The kind of thing that will bring us together is an alien invasion or a global pandemic. Well, we've all seen <laughs> that in the last year or so, the global pandemic is another uh, uh, example of motivated reasoning at work. You know, Republicans, at least in the U.S., you know, a lot of them think that either the virus is a hoax or the vaccine is problematic or it's part of Bill Gates' government control or what have you. And Democrats on the left, for the most part, I don't have the stats to hand, tend to think that government responses should be robust and that we should you know, worry about the pandemic and we should stay at home. That's not completely, but you do see these things going on party lines. I'm beginning to think an alien invasion would be seen on party lines, quite frankly, now. So that's, that's my start. <laughs> so we'll have to, hopefully, hopefully we don't, I think we've had enough in 2020 and 2021. Hopefully we don't get the alien invasion. But that is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Um, so building on that, um, and uh, it's really interesting hearing your reflections there um, because, uh, yeah, the differences between kind of freedom of speech as in everyone can speak, but what who's allowed on what platform is, is a really interesting one. Um, and with that in mind, how much is the kind of some sort of agreement on, and I guess this might come down to who's allowed access to certain platforms, right? Like if you can't agree to certain sort of norms or democratic commitment to some sort of truth or facts. Um, how is, how in, how much of a threat is that to democracy? Or I suppose in a more positive way, is that, how important is that to kind of democracy? Um, I'd say, um, James, did you have any initial thoughts on that? Well, I think that disagreement on, on, all facts is a problem because it makes it impossible to have a debate over appropriate responses to facts. Um, but I think in this debate, what we're, what we're actually often talking about is disagreement over whether there is such a thing as facts. Um, and it's, it's very interesting that we, we often hear voices on the right criticizing postmodernism for, for challenging the idea that there are settled facts. But actually then the same voices who are simply rejecting facts, rejecting the existence of facts, rejecting the idea of expertise, 
um, everyone's opinion is equal. That's that's actually interestingly coming from this exact same sources that previously were arguing it's a bad thing if we start questioning settled wisdom, established belief. So I think that is a that is a problem. I, I also think that there there is a particular context in the U.S. where you have a political party that has set itself up in as an anti-democratic party now and i think there is a there is an issue there with the republican party that it is it is moving away from actually being a party that believes in democracy as an appropriate system of government um and and towards one that actually is actively trying to undermine democracy i think it's important not to read across too much from the u.s context to the uk context the background is different the system is different um and while there are parallels between for example support for Donald Trump and support for Brexit, these things are not identical. Um, and actually, one of the things that's interesting in the UK is we really haven't seen the same kind of polarisation around the facts of the pandemic that we see in the US. In the UK, the, the voices on the sort of more libertarian right end of the spectrum are saying we should prioritise economic growth over public health. They're not saying the pandemic is made up by a secret conspiracy of Bill Gates and whatever, right? So that, I think, is a different kind of thing. And I think that it gives you a a sense of how, even if you disagree on things like how severe hospitalization rates are, um, on what proportion of people who die of COVID-19 would have died in a relatively short space of time anyway, which are things that are factually knowable, I think that's a different kind of thing from disagreeing over, you know, whether it is possible to put a number on the number of people who have died of COVID-19 or whether the thing exists in the first place or indeed whether getting vaccinated will enable you to pick up good Wi-Fi signal. Um, (laughs) You know, I doubt. doubt (laughs) Yeah, I I, I wasn't involved in making the vaccine, but yes, we could probably all be sceptical on that. (laughs) Anti-vaxxerism is a good example of a thing that, despite having a history in the UK, is really not... Is not a big part of public life. You really don't have, you know, significant figures in politics making arguments against vaccines. Quite the opposite. They're, they're, they're being embraced by people from different perspectives for, for their own particular reasons, which is one reason why the uptake has been so high. Brilliant. Thanks, James. I mean, what you were saying there about during the, the kind of, yeah, the kind of libertarian wing of the Tory right, they're not, in, they don't deny the science behind COVID-19. They just say we should, like the, it's the the COVID research, um, uh, COVID recovery group, right? Which is there's a lot of crossover between them and the European research group. And, um, and there is a contrast here with climate change, where there, there is more climate change denialism in British politics. Again, it's much it's much more of a minority position, partly because of the internal politics of the Conservative Party, which which has always had a sort of green streak to it. Um, but yeah, the there really hasn't been much much proper denialism um, over optimism certainly <laughs> sure uh, but not not at the level of no this is just china trying to undermine our our economy we haven't had that kind of nonsense brilliant thanks chris on that um and i guess i maybe in a similar respect to myself but, uh, so i study a lot about us politics but i'm and like you i live in the uk um and so I wonder what, if you've got any reflections on what James was saying there, anything you found particularly enlightening? or? Yeah, I do, and I'm glad you asked it in that quite that way. I, James, as you were talking, I was thinking, 
what's the real fundamental difference between how people in the US society are and UK society? And I feel it's in the UK we have a fundamental, although I would argue slightly decaying, decaying trust in big institutions. So the NHS is like one of the ultimate sort of shibboleths in, in UK society. We believe in it. It's a thing. We love. We were most of us were born in it. Uh, uh, if, if we're from here, and you know, we, we it's free. The point of use. We celebrate it. You know, we clap for the carers during COVID. And if you look at the US, well, let's not even talk about healthcare because we could talk about that for, for hours and hours. That that's not a functioning national system in the way, way we know about it. In the US, especially outside of democratic circles, there's this idea of mistrust of government. What did Ronald Reagan say? He said the, the, the X number of scariest words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, and I think that translates to this idea of any big organizations trying to do anything are fundamentally worrying. So you, you think about sort of uh, this big concern about the UN's Agenda 21 that I remember we had some blog posts about, you know, why that had percolated through the US uh, quite a few years ago. And this idea that, oh, well, people making vaccines, they must be out to get us, or George Soros is funding things. or There's people out to get us, and the only people we can trust are people who live here and, and look the way we do and, and act the way that we do. Whereas I think in, in the UK, we have more of a trust of, of big institutions trying to do things. We're quite cynical in that when we, they do things badly, as they occasionally or often do, we call them out on it. But we don't don't deny the fact that they should be doing stuff, if, if that makes any sense. So that's my feeling about the big differences, and I think that might explain some of the different reactions to, to but actually to, to politics in general, to be honest. I think, I don't know if you would ever see, despite um, Brexiteers, uh, you know, anger, I don't know if you would see the kind of mass, and I mean mass, that doesn't discount individual incidents, but the mass storming of Parliament, because I think people... They may think that people in Parliament are rotten, possibly, but they don't deny that it should exist, whereas you have this storming of the Capitol. Okay, that's really interesting. While you guys were uh, talking, I was thinking a little bit about, I don't know if you've read it, Stephen Pinker's book on um, the better angels of our nature, and he writes a little bit about, so part of his theory is this idea that big chunks of the US kind of got, the, the people there got armed before they could be, civ like, uh, kind of rates of violence could fall within the communities and so they've never had to accept a state in the way that others have because they don't like the, the rules about the legitimate use of violence don't necessarily because of the uh, amendment to the constitution and because of the fact that lots of people do have arms it's never quite percolated I just that was uh, kind of was running through my mind um Atsuko did you have any um any thoughts on UK difference. Yeah, or on kind of the the importance of um, kind of some kind of or the accept. I mean, James put it quite interesting actually. Even accepting the idea of facts existing with relation to democracy. Um, I suppose. Uh, um, I don't. Uh, no, uh, I don't think I'm a good observer in this regard. Um, just thinking about how you know, especially this COVID pandemic has been dealt with in, you know, outside UK, US. Um, two examples I know probably best, Taiwan and Japan. Um, in both cases, I don't know, facts are accepted. And um, I'm still puzzled as to why Japan has managed to suppress the number so well 
at the, in the past wave. At the moment, they're going through apparently the third wave. Um, but they're going back to Taiwan skates, and somehow I was thinking kind of when James was uh, mentioning about the possible, no, it's a squeeze, so it's either pandemic or, or alien invasion which has to unite us all, etc. etc. I think in Taiwan, um, two things happened. One is uh, Hong Kong, uh, pro-democracy protest in Hong Kong, and pandemic has made, I think, Taiwan more independently minded or DPP supporting than any other things that can be done. So, um, and DPP in this case has managed and uh, has played transparency cards so well. So the facts are always shared and, and trusted and supported. So I think there are ways of, uh, there has to be some um, ways in which democracy is done or politics is done that can kind of enhance trust in, in, in facts or trust in authorities or trust in authorities will be undermined so that therefore whatever the, whatever the source of authority will say will be doubted or challenged or not believed. Brilliant, thanks. Um, and so just in, so I was just looking while I was doing some prep for the interview. I mean the numbers in Japan are, so it's got about seven deaths per hundred thousand at present which is about a tenth of what they've got in Germany and I think less than a twentieth of what we've had in the UK. Um, and then in Taiwan, it's even lower. I think it might be seven overall, like seven deaths, <laughs> which is just uh, mind-blowing um, sitting in, you know, in, in the UK. Um, brilliant. Well, that was like a really interesting, engaging discussion to start off with. Um, so uh, thanks for all your thoughts. Um, turning to kind of the specific roles that you... Um, that, that you guys hold and I guess this is with relation to the pandemic or uh, but actually in general as well um, how do you view your roles with relation to kind of free speech and um, kind of protecting and, and I should say this isn't about stopping different interpretation and contestations right like that's it as James and Chris have both said right that's an important part of of academia and it's certainly a key part of democracy but how do you view your roles with relation to kind of I guess like ideas around false narratives or um, and I'm particularly I suppose interested in this regard of, of Chris have you got any thoughts on that because you must you know because just so as you've already touched on right so much of US politics is so contested um, I wondered if you had any kind of thoughts on how that has played out or is playing out with relation to your role. <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, I think my role as an editor historically has been about presenting evidence and presenting evidence in an easy to understand way and, and sort of finding that evidence and bringing it to people. And there's sort of, I guess, the difference between evidence and, and narrative is, well, how do you use the evidence to, to push a narrative? And you can kind of, you can kind of ring evidence a little bit to create a certain narrative, but at some point, the gap is going to become so far that this narrative doesn't isn't supported by the evidence. Um, and so I've always focused on getting content from peer-reviewed journals or academic sources or academics or you know, people outside of academia who have a trustworthy record or what I would consider to be a trustworthy record. And that's, that's my bias of whatever I consider to be trustworthy as a social scientist. Um, 
But I mean, I've been really lucky that most of the content coming my way has been more or less evidence-based. Sometimes commentary can be reaching, but I don't think it's egregiously so, and it, it can be supportable. And also by putting it out there, it can get knocked down. But I think it's it's the role of people like like us or people like me is to is to be that first gate, just to make sure that the content isn't going to be completely you know you know a completely false narrative. Or I just say to people like you know what you said isn't supported by the evidence you provided, or you haven't provided evidence. Can you please provide it? And then working with someone to get to a point where the narrative is actually more in line with what the evidence is being presented. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Chris. And James, as a as a kind of a co-editor of, of a journal and quite a, a prominent journal in the UK, um, I'm sure lots of our listeners have heard. Um, kind of, if, especially if you're members of the PSA, um, then you'll be aware of it. How how would you see your role? I guess I mean, Chris talked a little bit about kind of respected sources, and I would presume, like I definitely would see your journal as being that in the same way with that Suko's book series. How do you see your role in in that regard? I think one advantage that we have, one way in which it's easier for us perhaps than it is for Chris, is that um, we are already expected to go through a peer review process, right? Anything that's going to be published in our journal is going to be reviewed by two or three experts in the field before it's going to be approved. On top of that, the editors are going to have a look as well. Um, And um, that means that we generally don't get many submissions that don't have evidence attached to them, for example. You know, it's a different kind of format. Um, if you're writing four to 8,000 words for a journal article, you, you expect to provide some kind of evidence along with that. Um, and it's fairly easy to say no to something that doesn't, that doesn't meet that, that isn't fitting the convention of a journal article. Um, I think that it's important to sort of flag the role of peer review, which is far from a perfect process it has a number of flaws to it but it does mean that the judgment about what is appropriate for publication is never purely one person's subjective judgment it's always a, an intersubjective judgment drawing on views from from different kinds of specialists and i think something that we try and do is um not only um you know try and get a variety of specialists or diversity of specialists to look at an article so perhaps someone who's more uh, familiar with the method used, someone who's more familiar with the case that's being studied, someone who's more familiar with the particular theory. So you get a range of different inputs that then enable you as the editor to make the final decision, okay, are we going to go ahead and publish this? I think that there is a, a responsibility that we have, and again, the, the idea that peer review is a, is a, a quality mark, a kite mark, I think is something that we, we are responsible for ensuring that that is the case and, and for being careful around what we do um, give that stamp of credibility to. Um, and I think in particular, one role we have, it's not something that's often been an issue, but in ensuring that what we publish is non-partisan and is visibly non-partisan. I think there's a broader issue for academics, and I think in formats like social media, in formats like Twitter, it's a problem where um, we are disproportionately, though not exclusively, politically left-leaning um, and we have a tendency in non-peer review settings to say things and to present arguments that are more partisan kind of arguments. I think there's an issue there when you start eliding this distinction between uh, your position as an academic expert and your personal political views and I think 
social media is where that becomes more of an issue in a journal you can hold the line much more and say look where is your actual research and if it's not there it's not getting through so brilliant okay thanks very much james and atsuko as an editor of kind of book series would you come across similar issues in that regard not that if it might not necessarily be with relation to covid19 or or the pandemic but in in general um, with the book series, not necessarily, um, but with the journal, yes, we do. Um, we're dealing with something called nationalism, which is highly, highly um, sensitive, uh, could be problematic. But as James said, I think we are very much depend on peer review, the idea that everything will go through peer reviewing. Um, and that means that the you know, all these people reviewing the, the article will stake their reputation on what they're doing. So it's a, it's kind of a, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a, it's 100% um, perfect, etc., etc., but it's a great way of making sure that something like, you know, when you're discussing, say, Zionism, for instance, how do you make sure, you know, you can, you can discuss Zionism in a way that it is not anti-Semitic. Or you can take a, a, a critique of Zionism um, as an example of anti-Semitism, but it's not your view. But you are just looking at the, the presentation of certain idea from different point of view. Um, but in order to make sure that it is not presented as party a partisan positioning, etc., etc., I think um, peer review is it's most important. And um, this is where I sometimes, I have learned a bit of lesson recently when we're dealing with um, articles on China. Um, basically, I wasn't very, very in tune, very much in tune with um, kind of politics amongst scholars of, of China who studies Chinese politics and Chinese nationalism and um, I seems to have at one in one case I I seems to have chosen a wrong kind of um, referee and um, which caused a bit of reaction from the, the author but we um, that comes from my um, you know my ignorance as an editor when trying to find the you know, appropriate referees for the uh, for the article. I just didn't have enough background to do that. Um, but again, this, you know, because it is the uh, peer review system, um, they also could get back to us and we could have again looked at it. So, um, yes, there are ways of, you know, because articles take time to, to get published, so there are more layers of checking and making sure that what is presented is supported basically supported by evidence in one way or another um, and all the all the aspects are looked at and um, given due consideration so um, I think in academic, academic journals we have that uh, a privilege or luxury of having peer review system and doesn't have to be like instantaneously produce something on pronounce something on something and 
it is frustrating in, in one way, but I think it's a beauty of, of the strength of academic publishing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure all of us have been, um, I, I'm sure all of us have been on the end of reviews where you think, oh, that person hasn't understood my work. But then that is, you know, it's just a different point of view. And so ultimately you can uh, hopefully uh, work through it. Uh, Chris, you wanted to come in? Yeah, I think just thinking about, you know, thinking about blogs and, and academic journals, and it sort of struck me that it's really important to remember that how the public get information and where the information comes from. And I hate to say this, but most of them aren't reading academic journals, and most of them aren't reading academic It's not like, I'm not trying to be mean, but it's the truth. Um, most of them, probably, I hate to say, aren't reading the blog that I wrote. A few are, but a lot aren't. And I think we have to, like, we can try as hard as we can to be evidence-based and to put get the truth out there and use peer review. But if folks aren't kind of even reading us, then where does that kind of leave us? It means we're just talking to our own echo chamber of academics. And it's really interesting, going back to James's point about academics on social media, what, what, I've done a lot of work on, on who interprets what. And I think it's fascinating because often you'll, some, someone who works as like an economics journalist or something like that will pick up like a sociology paper or a geography paper and completely miss the interpretation of the academic. Quote something, not, not necessarily in, intentionally, will quote something out of context and make a conclusion about the evidence or the statistics and what sort of what call for a recourse does the academic or even the institution have to that sometimes it's actually really helpful when the academic is on social media or is more engaged can actually say this is my interpretation and or I mean to blow my own trumpet a little bit having platforms which more directly engage with the public like the USAP blog and indeed millions of other blogs that are out there is actually quite important because it means that we are able to provide another platform where we can say our piece and say this is our interpretation of the work we've created because I think the media, like if there's something's a preprint or a survey done by like an insurance company, they, they kind of weight everything the same, right? And I think it's really important to, to say that we know that you know there are different types of robustness of evidence, but the general public, they're not remotely, like most people, most of they don't really even know what correlation is for the most part. The general public, they, they you know, any any of the kind of statistical stuff or you know that, that kind of flies around, most people don't engage with that. They see the clickbait title, and they kind of go for this. So I think it's really important to remember that when we're producing evidence or, or adjudicating it, thinking what what's what's the gut reaction to this going to be, and often if something is very difficult to understand or, you know, something non-expert would understand, that can create real problems because it means they may completely misinterpret what the finding is. Yeah, sure. That I mean, that's true, isn't it? They kind of like throw away around terms like correlation is not causation and stuff like that. But if if the average if, if the average reader doesn't understand the difference between the two, or kind of median and mean, right, like then, you know, <laughs> you can get into some really troubling interpretations of, of, of data. Great. Thanks, Chris. Um, and so I just wondered, have any of you, and this might just be like a st straight no across the whole panel, so I don't know. <laughs> I just wondered, has the pandemic driven any changes in your editorial or working processes with relation to publishing? Or has kind of, because there was quite stringent uh, processes in place already, it's um, things have just carried on. And if it's just like literally a two second no, then that's fine. <laughs> I'm just interested just went online that's it basically okay sure 
Yeah. Has it been the same for you, James, with the the politics journal? Has there been any? Only only in terms of practical things. So we've been more relaxed about extending deadlines than we normally would have been. Um, we've had to sort of rejuggle um, amongst ourselves with people handling childcare commitments and that kind of thing. The fairly standard kind of working from home, working remotely type stuff. Uh, I mean, our editorial assistant already worked remotely anyway, so we were kind of in the habit and the way the system is set up, it worked quite well with it. Um, so we haven't done anything beyond that. I think the only thing is we, like many journal editors, have been concerned about the impact of the pandemic on, uh, in particular, gender equity in publishing. Um, at the same time, we don't have a, a particular policy for intervening on that, and it's very difficult to know what, what a general policy that would be workable would look like, because unless you start holding people to different criteria on the basis of their gender, we're not in the, in the position to really do anything about it at our kind of at our kind of level um so you know it's something that we're aware of it's something we've been monitoring um we haven't actually seen a big impact in terms of our submissions um it, we're still hovering around 50 50 uh in terms of um gender of first authors um but one thing we have seen is a significant overall increase in submissions some people are getting a lot more research done under COVID conditions than they would be otherwise. And of course, kind of by definition, we're not seeing the ones who aren't getting anything done. So there is definitely an issue there, but we don't have a plan. And it's oh, okay. to see what we could do. Yeah, sure. And it, I guess it could take years to feed through, right? It might be the next round of the ref by the time. Um, hopefully some people who are listening to this know what the ref is. <laughs> if not, it's just this bizarre thing that we go through as academics. You just never worry about it unless you're an academic. Um, brilliant. Thanks, James. Um, and Chris, is it, have you, I know, I mean, you're an online platform anyway. Um, has it driven, apart from maybe working at home more, or have there been any particular changes? I mean, from my point of view, technically everything is the same. People send me stuff and I send it back to them after editing it. I'm just doing it from home now. But I agree with James, like, we've had so many more submissions. So, and it's hard to, to disconnect it from the presidential election that happened last year as well. Blogs are always really busy during election seasons. This is even more so. Um, and also, you know, we had a big uptick of interest after the uh, on uh, Black Lives Matter after the killing of George Floyd as well. So I, I think those three things have, have meant interest in online publications because people are in, indoors, you know, they can't go out, so they're reading more stuff online. It's been huge. So we've had a really big uptick of submissions, mostly for the most part from white men. For the most part, I mean, most of our submissions tend to be from white men usually, but I feel like it's been more noticeable. So that could go into some of the the uh, the, the sort of gender disparities we've talked about. Um, but yeah, it's a lot. I mean, it's it's hard to say. It's still mostly from academics and mostly evidence based. Some stuff from people just kind of with some disjointed thoughts about things um, because they're academics. They feel actually. We've had a few submissions from sort of academics who have been writing about one subject and think they're sort of trying their hand at, about COVID or some, some kind of new insight. And it's not really very evidence-based. It's kind of a lot of noodling about talking about their thoughts of COVID and, and that kind of stuff and, and haven't been particularly helpful. 
uh, I don't think. And, and, and it's just sort of they, they feel that there's a big world event happening and they want to say their piece, but they're not really adding anything to the discussion. So I tend to discourage that sort of stuff. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and then on the kind of the next theme I wanted to uh, move on to was I, I guess we'll probably it'll become obvious why to start with Chris on this um, is have there been like, in terms of false narratives are there particular false narratives that and there clearly are in US politics on this but how like how much are they connected to what was going on before and how much is it even possible to tease it out um, with relation to um, kind of US US politics or or in the pieces that you've been examining so are you meaning sort of in the content I've been getting or just... Oh, general? I don't mean that people are submitting stuff with false content. I just mean, I guess maybe like in general in US politics, this is, I suppose, your thoughts on what you're um, the expert in, I guess. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the big one is on uh, voter fraud in the US. Um, and you saw this, I mean, historically, uh, you know, Republicans have been more concerned about voter fraud. Which actually, I should, I should say the real issue is the voter suppression with Republicans since the Voting Rights Act was... was uh, gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013 or 2014. Effectively, you have ironically Republicans, the ones who complain the most about voting, uh, voter, you know, uh, voter fraud. But actually, they're the ones, especially in places you've seen like Georgia, they're the ones who, who suppress the vote and the um, of, of, of people of color, for example. Um, but I, I think, especially since Trump sort of talked about, you know, that Biden is still in the election, um, talking about, you know. Lots of ballots and mail ballots have been misplaced when there was no evidence. But a lot of that goes back to historic, you know, in previous years, lots of supposed evidence about voter fraud, which would never come into anything. And actually, if you look at the the one, the literal like handful of confirmed voter fraud incidents that happen in any given year, often they're by Republicans, which is kind of the, the deep irony of the thing. So in, I've seen that, especially with with Trump in, in the sort of the. Um, the intermission between the election and, and Biden's inauguration, lots of things about voter fraud and, and, and the stealing of the stealing of the election, even though there's no evidence. But that has only kind of reached the crescendo it did because of all that building up that had happened previously and all the arguments that previously been litigated. It didn't come from nothing, is really worth saying. Okay, brilliant. Um, at Suco, is there anything kind of? Has has this played in in kind of in your work with the Nations Nationalism Journal, or with with the book series, or in your own research? Is there is are these anything that's um, emerged in this regard? Not necessarily. Um, no, I don't think I have been concerned with it, and so th therefore I haven't really picked up much. Um, that's okay, brilliant. Thanks, Atika. Yeah, sure. Um, and James, I could see you nodding along with a lot of what Chris was saying. So, did, uh, did you have any kind of further thoughts on it, or anything to add in that regard? Well, I think. Um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned some of it earlier on already. That that so we've had less of an issue with false narratives in the UK for for various reasons. Anyway, um, I think that there's also a different kind of informational ecosystem in the UK if you want to put it that way where we have uh, hugely partisan newspapers um, but at the same time we also have a very regulated television news system um, and the presence of the BBC the state-funded broadcaster which although it continues to come under attack from from particularly the political right 
um, it, it still is regarded as a trustworthy source by a significant proportion of the population. And to some extent, that crosses over political boundaries. There, there is another issue there that, that, that is definitely declining. Um, so I think that has, has helped. Um, and so I think false narratives haven't really been the concern in the UK, really, uh, in general. Where there has been an issue, it's been amongst um, ethnic minority populations that have often been targeted by specific disinformation, playing on pre-existing and often well-founded um, mistrust of the state, mistrust of authority. Some of the same kinds of um, issues that we see in the United States, uh, populations that are alienated from state authority, um, being more susceptible to misinformation that plays on that alienation. Um, and that there are specific issues there, particularly given um, we're also talking about populations that have suffered disproportionately from COVID-19 uh, are now being being targeted with anti-vaccination uh, measures. But even here, you know, we've seen concerted efforts by politicians from across the political spectrum to work together. You know, there was very, a very good video recently produced by South Asian MPs from across the political spectrum all coming together and saying, look, I'm a Conservative, I'm a Labour member, I'm SNP, um, get a vaccine. My mum's had the vaccine, I've had the vaccine, my dad's, all this kind of thing, which I thought was very well done. Um, and I think actually something that's been really helpful in the UK context has been the way the vaccine has been rolled out. There was talk early on about maybe the Prime Minister should get vaccinated on TV to show everyone that it's safe. And I, I understand that argument. But having a bunch of nice little 90-year-olds completely normal people who just <laughs> happened to sit in the right place. Yeah. You know, literally, like, if you look at the first few people who had it, you had the guy that went viral on US TV, um, you had Margaret Keenan, who got the very first one. You know, they're little old people. And they're little old people saying, oh, thank goodness, you know, I'll actually be able to see my grandchildren again. Much more effective than any kind of messaging that the government could possibly have done. Um, and I think there's we're seeing more of that now in terms of reaching specific communities with for example, using faith centres to roll out vaccines and so on and so forth. So, again, and again, we're, we're not a particularly anti-vaxxer country. Levels of anti-vaxxer sentiment are quite low in the UK compared to other um, developed states. So I think that's an issue. I have to think one final thing, which I suppose is a false narrative. It's almost a, an extension of a broader pathology within the UK. We've done a terrible job at learning from other countries during COVID-19. It's been one of the one of the really big failures. Um, and uh, one of the drivers of it has been this, this deeply ingrained belief across the whole of public life that we must be better at everything than everybody else. We mentioned earlier on the, the successes of many East Asian countries in con controlling COVID-19 and responding to it. Um, very little attention is paid to that in the UK. We talk about New Zealand, we talk about Australia, but we don't talk about Japan. I mean, Japan, Tokyo, the density of the population, this should have been a, an extremely dangerous place. The conditions were far better for COVID-19 to spread than they are in the UK. Um, but, but there's no real effort to learn from, from practices elsewhere. There's no real effort to learn from countries like uh, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, South Korea, that have done a good job of containing COVID-19, um, whereas Britain hasn't. And I think it's not so much a false narrative, but it is a, an unhelpful 
excess of self-confidence, perhaps, um, that has cost a lot of lives. Brilliant. Thanks, James. Uh, just, I suppose, uh, that was really interesting. I, I'm somewhat going to put Atsuko on the spot here <laughs> as someone who is a bit like, I suppose, myself and Chris writing about the US but being based in the UK. Is um, someone who's Japanese but is based in the UK but has, um, as a result of me um, <laughs> chasing her, written a bit about um, Japan and Taiwan. Did, um, it, did you have anything to add to what James was saying? The point about learning, that was anything to add there? To start with, I'm, I'm not, I still don't know why it got so bad in this country. I just don't get it. I don't know what. It started in Wuhan 13 months ago, was it? And then quite a big time they had. But somehow, as uh, James saying, it's pointed out, somehow Britain has never managed to uh, preempt anything that that has been done um, somewhere else. As far as uh, um, uh, what uh, Britain can could learn from East Asian countries, I don't know about about Japan because my my view of how Japanese government responded in the first in the first um, phase was that they didn't do much really, but it's a population which very conformist and they uh, you know okay Japan wasn't really hit by SARS to, uh, so it, it wasn't as prepared as South Korea or um, Taiwan or Hong Kong etc etc but still population was more susceptible to all these public uh, health messages that you have to you have to do this and you have to do that and without any legal sanction, people would do it. Um, even now, at the moment, Tokyo and several places is under state of emergency. And the state of emergency consists of that shops and restaurants and bars closes at 8 o'clock in the evening. And people are encouraged to work from home. Nothing is illegal. That's it. They're the measures. <laughs> well. And then there, uh, apparently there, uh, um, ICU capacity is, uh, is, is really full at the moment, despite a relatively low number of um, sick, very severely sick patients. And it's something to do, um, despite the fact that the, the, the number of beds per population is very high in Japan, apparently. It's doubling the number of this country or something like that. Um, but the, the way the health system is structured in Japan is very different. So uh, I just don't know what you can learn from Japan apart from making people, I don't know, more compliant, which I don't think is a very good idea. Uh, as for Taiwan, I think it's a, um, and again, what you can learn from Taiwan, it's like being very transparent and it really helped in the case of Taiwan that it, they've been ostracized by, by the PRC. Um, that you know, even by the time the COVID hit um, Taiwan, um, the Chinese government stopped issuing tourist visas to Taiwan. So therefore, there aren't ma many traffic 
bringing me vans. Any case, and Taiwan was didn't really because the current government relations, the peace relations with the with the, uh, the mainland, it's not. It's very cool. So um, um, there are family behind me from the pro democracy camps in Hong Kong, etc. So therefore, they didn't hesitate to to shut down the border, um, and that helped. And they just use. And uh, I think the the population size was probably just about right for the government to hold an effective database. And given that the growing and cutting edge um, IT industry, they managed to put all these kind of uh, different factors together and being really, you know, focusing on transparency. And that seems to have worked with, with the Taiwanese population. Okay, what can you learn from this? I'm not sure. You, um, Britain is not really, it's not really ostracized by China, etc., etc. But um, um, the, the issue of database, how you, I mean, like in South Korea, data, how you make sure that the, you use IT to the size of the population is just probably too too much. And the way NHS, you know, any database, public database works in this country, it's not particularly well. And that can be, the same thing can be said in Japan, that the Japanese population is too too large to be to be effectively controlled by a centralized database, I suppose. So, um, yes, I think there are a few things you can learn from um, from other countries. But uh, um, I'm still puzzled why why it has got so so bad in this country. Yeah, I mean, uh, the kind of obvious parallel in the UK is, is Germany, right? And uh, Germany has, I mean, in recent months, Germany has struggled, as most European countries yeah. have, but it's still um, much less than half in terms of deaths in the UK. Okay, right, thank you very much. Just before we wrap up, I just, and we've touched on some of this already, um, and I suppose the main point that people put forward was um, peer review, and Chris talked about, you know, uh, focusing on, evidence that one would um, put some trust in and um, so I just wonder are there beyond those or um, kind of any other points you'd like to make on those are, are there do we have any models that we can rely on as kind of or you guys can rely on as editors or um, maybe uh, as, as academics in general um, uh, Chris it's a good question I was just thinking is that we're thinking about how how to avoid getting it wrong, I suppose. What, what I do is, I mean, I've been doing academic blog editing for more than a decade now, and sometimes I'm still not sure when something comes in. And so I will refer that to peers in other departments or other experts or other academic experts and just say, hey, you know, I've had a look at this, not sure about this bit of evidence, or this doesn't quite feel right, doesn't pass my sense, sense check have a look and let me know what you think. So that would be mine. So look to, to, to the peers you trust and look to people who are smarter than you. <laughs> but look to people who are smarter than you for help in that kind of thing. And, and don't be afraid to take a bit of extra time. Because I think certainly from my point of view, there's always a pressure to be very quick and reactive and 
get something out you know, on a daily or even hourly basis. But this is the kind of thing we don't really want to mess up. So take the time to sort of ask around and just double and triple check. And you know what? If you don't run something, it's probably not the end of the world. Okay, brilliant. Thanks. James, did you have any final thoughts on that, um, that point? Yeah, I mean, there are external frameworks to draw in as well. So politics, we are signatories to the uh, Commission on Publication Ethics Charter, I think it's called, which sets out um, a set of ethical principles to guide the work of academic journal editors. And they have guidance, um, for example, for how to respond to allegations of uh, plagiarism or of fraud or of uh, misrepresentation of results and so on. So there is a second level as well on top of the, the sort of initial sense check that you get through going through peer review where you have um, experts looking at the data and saying, look, does this data hold up? Is this plausible? Does it make sense, etc.? There's also kind of a fallback mechanism there. If we publish something and then it transpires that there is something fundamentally wrong with it, we do have a mechanism for looking at it again. Um, and we do have a mechanism if it was necessary to withdraw something after it's been published. It's less of a concern for us than it is perhaps in the natural sciences where publication tends to move a lot more quickly. Um, you know, we have the, the luxury of time um, and the luxury of a research culture that moves over periods of years rather than periods of weeks. Um, so that I think is helpful as well. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, these are the key things. Just and, and finally, just sort of remembering our position in the whole ecosystem of knowledge. We are we are, it's a very academic thing, but we are kind of the, the, the abstract, the technical stuff, the, the sort of fake building blocks on which ideas that then go on to influence policy and influence public debate more directly are built. Um, and as, as Chris said earlier on, ordinary members of the public don't read academic journals, and that's not what they're for, right? You know, we say in politics, we say, oh, it's so terrible that um, ordinary members of the public can't read our research, but they don't say that in particle physics, right? That at, at a certain point, there has to be research that is for t that is technical stuff for specialists. Um, the trick is then to find ways of drawing out what are the, the conclusions, what are the arguments, and that's why things like academic blogs are useful because actually those do get read by not only a wider range of members of the public, but also, for example, by journalists who then play another intervening role. And so that's when you then form part of the network. So there's a skill set element to it as well. And I think that academics, because we are relatively trusted, because we are seen as neutral arbiters, can play a really important role in, in countering the spread of false narratives and misinformation, provided we firstly stick to the facts, avoid mixing up our personal politics with our evidence and, and our, our findings, um, and secondly, um, provided we play our part in, in not just doing that fundamental building block research, but then also taking the next steps and, and making sure that it's, that it's successful and that we are, we are sort of setting our own narratives, drawing out the key themes that we think we have identified. Brilliant. Thanks, James. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the, like, the pace of publication in the, the natural sciences. Um, sometimes, I mean, just thinking about it exhausts me. The, <laughs> the, 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 
the speed in which they they tend to get papers or at least drafts of papers out there and then those papers get cited and yeah yeah it's a very different um method um at suko is there anything to add i think james had said it all <laughs> okay fantastic all right then well um is there just before we wrap up uh, the episode was there any other final points that anyone wanted to make like on the topic in general or any other kind of final reflections I thought of something on false narratives. Um, one false narrative that has has played some role in the UK is the idea that there is mass rule breaking going on, and that mass rule breaking is the primary driver of the continued spread of COVID nineteen, rather than the rules themselves not being sufficient to stop the spread of COVID nineteen. I think that this is one of the ways in which the government has tried to shift the blame from its own failures onto ordinary people, encouraged and assisted by by a media culture which is built around gotcha moments, built around catching people out and built around telling people, look at how bad your next door neighbour is being. Early on, we had all these photographs in the newspaper of, look at these terrible people not following the social distancing rules. But what they actually were, were pictures of a, a pathway a mile long that have been taken at an angle where it looks like everyone's standing next to each other, but they're not standing next to each other. They're significant distances apart. The, the, the image has just been foreshortened. Um, and there, a lot of that was very unhelpful and, and was damaging because if you convince people that no one else is following the rules, then they won't follow the rules either. And again, you know, the British state does not have the capacity to coerce people to follow these kind of rules. Um, so I think this narrative which the government has played up when it's helped shift responsibility away from its own shortcomings has been a problem, but interestingly, it hasn't been enough of a problem to affect the fact that the vast majority of people continue to obey the rules the vast majority of the time, um, which may well be a testament to uh, the British people not so much liking being told what to do because we don't really like being told what to do, but I like to think of it as the queuing mentality. You know, we do love standing in queues, and I think that there's an element of that has played through in terms of our in terms of our compliance. In fact, in, in many respects, the act of queuing has just got better as COVID nineteen has gone on, because now now we're so far we're, we're so far spaced out that no one's going to talk to us at all. It's it's perfect. So. Um, that was just the only other false narrative I wanted. Okay, to great. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking that, I was thinking. I don't know if any of you listened to um, there's a uh, the Times Red Box podcast and uh, like Matt Chorley's. Uh, like, a, if I could be as funny as Matt Chorley is on a podcast, I would <laughs> would be a very rich man. But they every month they interview um, like uh, they do a focus group, and every month they sort of one of their questions at the moment is, "Do you understand the rules?" And inevitably people say, well, not really. And then they say, but do you generally follow them? And everyone goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so even though there's like people, some people say, well, I, I see my mom when I shouldn't. But in general, like people wear masks. Um, but OK, we'll, we'll wrap it up there for the recording. So thank you very much for all coming on. It was really generous of you to give up your time. Um, yeah, so th and I look forward to uh, speaking to you all again in the future. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot, Pete. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.